Welcome to Basecamp, where men meet together to seek deeper understanding of authentic manhood and apply principles from God's Word to our daily lives. Um, this is a long passage. It's 71 verses, so what we're going to do is we're going to use a summary. We're going to use an outline to go through and cover what it covers, but then we're going to go into detail on some of the points in it. First, We've got uh, Jesus, uh, the whole thing begins, this whole chapter begins in verses three through four with Satan entering Judas and Judas agreeing to betray Jesus. Then we see Jesus sending out Paul and, or Peter and John in order to prepare the Passover. Then it moves to Jesus' desire to finally uh, share this supper, this final Passover with, this, with his disciples. And he, this is the time when Jesus tells them who's going, to, or that some, one of them is going to betray him. Then the disciples argue about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And this is where Jesus kind of flips the script a little bit, right? Where he says the greatest is going to be the servant, and whoever wants to be first has to be slave of all, right? But then immediately after that, Jesus doesn't just warn Peter, right? Jesus warns them all, says Satan wants to sift all of you as wheat. But then he singles out Peter and says, you're gonna deny me three times tonight. Before, the, before the, the dawn, you're gonna deny that you know me three times. Then after that, we see Jesus leaves from the, 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 the Passover, right? And goes to the garden of the Gethsemane and he prays while his disciples, while his men sleep, okay? Then we go to the next part where we see Jesus being arrested, and that's the part where Jesus calls this, and this is important, the hour of darkness, that this, this is the hour of darkness. And we're, gonna, we're gonna hang out on that a little bit today. Then immediately after that, just as Jesus, Jesus didn't predict, Jesus narrated, Jesus shared with Peter what he would definitely do, which is disown him, and Peter does. What's interesting is two of the disciples enter the chief priest's house, Peter and John. Only one of them we get any indication denied knowing Jesus at the end of that. Again, we're gonna tie back to that by the end of the, end of the time. And the last part is, <laughs> Jesus is condemned at the end of this, but what's he condemned for? He's condemned at the end of it. The ultimate thing, the pivot point of the whole story was telling the truth about himself. That was the thing that condemned him the most, most assuredly. So we're gonna jump into that, and I'm gonna say a quick prayer for us uh, as we jump in. Lord, I pray that the meditations in my heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be like men that look into a mirror and forget what we look like when we turn away, but we may not just hearers of the word, but doers of it. And Lord, I especially, I don't care if anybody else in this room hears what you have to say. I wanna hear it. I need to hear it. We need to hear it. Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts to put this stuff into practice. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it's interesting to me. Jesus calls this time, just as he's getting arrested, he's like, uh, this is the hour of darkness or the hour when darkness reigns, which is kind of interesting to me, right? Because if you really think about it, it can't be because of the kinds of sin that exist at this point, right? The types of sin that exist in Jesus' day had already existed for millennia. And I would even add something. They're far worse than anything we can imagine in terms of individual sin. We wrestle with, let's say, abortion, and we should. When does life begin in the womb? They didn't wrestle with that. They were literally still doing child sacrifice at this time. 
right? There were places that were doing it, not just doing it, but venerating it, putting babies in uh, the arms of superheated bronze statues, basically a skillet. The baby rolls down and into a fire, okay? Terrible sin. We wrestle with, and we should, sexual immorality, right? They didn't wrestle with that. They had entire religions built around it. Temples, priests, priestesses, gods, who are representing demons, built around this stuff. So when Jesus says this is the hour of darkness, what is he talking about? What makes this time darker than all these other times, right? And what I would say is, this is when mankind gets to reject Jesus Christ face to face. They get to meet Jesus Christ. They get to meet God in the flesh and say, we don't want you. I got to tell you, that's dark, right? But think about this. I think this is important. Jesus holds the chief priests and the, the Jewish leaders more culpable at this point. Why? Because number one, they understood who he was claiming to be. And two, they had every reason to believe. They had the validation of the miracles and the validation of prophecy, and they still rejected him. But there's another group, a bigger group, and that's the Gentiles, represented by the Roman Empire at the time. And they come in there, and they're willing accomplices to Jesus' death, but they got one thing going for them at this time. Ignorance. They don't really fully understand who he claims to be, or the significance of it, or the validation of it. So they don't know that right now. But here's the next question. We look in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, and Jesus says that in the final days, the days just before he comes, it will be particularly dark, darker in a sense, in the sense that if they weren't cut short, no one would have survived, right? So why would they be darker? Now you have everybody is in the know, right? You have the Jewish people who should have recognized the Messiah when he came, but this second time you have some changes. You have entire, the entire global society has been changed by the gospel, by Jesus Christ. Think about this. Things that were completely normal in Jesus's day are completely abnormal today. Genocide is a bad thing. Back then, it was policy. It was a good idea. You go to war with another state, you want to make sure that a state never fights you again? Genocide, right? We look at the things that they looked at back then. Slavery. We recognize slavery bad, right? At one point, at different points in Rome, there were actually more slaves than free men in Rome. Things that we take, we, the Gentile world has seen the world changed and not because of any other name, not because of any other reason that we can point back to except for Jesus Christ. Here's the final thing that'll make everybody more culpable when Jesus comes back the second time. The Bible. Right now, Wycliffe, the, the Bible translators estimate that by 2025, the Bible or some portion of the Bible will have been translated into all of the 6,909 first languages. Think about that. When Jesus comes back and people reject him, they're not rejecting somebody that they don't know or, have, or that they shouldn't have known. They're rejecting somebody who they had every opportunity to get to know right? So what makes it darker? It makes it darker is that the entire world will know who he claims to be and still side with Satan. That's pretty dark. So my thing is with this, if that's the case, then what's the purpose of this passage? I think that we can pull some points from here. How do you live in dark days? Again, it doesn't matter if Jesus comes back in our lifetime or, or after it. I think these principles are the things that we see at work here can still apply today, okay?
So specifically, there's six of these. I'm gonna start off with the promise. I see a great promise here, man, right? God is able to do an inverse and proportionally great thing with every tragedy, with every miscarriage of justice, right? No matter how big or small, right? Think about this. God uses the darkest moment, the single greatest miscarriage of justice in human history to do the single greatest miracle. Think about this. We have, there's almost, there's a, a certainty that there's at least one or two men or women in our justice system who've been falsely accused and falsely convicted of a crime they didn't commit. And yet, none of us, not them, not us, no human being can say they're innocent completely. Maybe they're innocent of that crime, but we're all innocent of some kind of crime, some sin. The only one that can say that they were completely innocent was Jesus Christ. And yet, he's falsely convicted and condemned and murdered for this sin, right? And yet God can use that to save every human being who wants to be saved, who accepts the gift, who lived before Jesus, while Jesus is alive, and after Jesus is alive. I gotta tell you, man, that's pretty good. This stuff sells itself, right? Okay, well then my hypothesis, if he can do that, it's like, as Marty would say, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he can even do that, then guess what else he can do? He can use me showing up late to work and flip it for something that's inverse. One, take something bad and make it good. And two, proportional to at least the same level of the bad it was. Cancer, he can do it. Death of a child, he can do it. The question is, do we believe he can do it? That's the tough part. It's a promise and we have to apprehend it. There's no other way that we can really understand Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to purpose. There is no way that you can actually believe Romans chapter five, verse three through five, where it says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. How's that possible? It's not possible, right? Unless one, we don't rejoice because we're suffering. We rejoice because we know what God's able to produce through the suffering, that he's able to do an inverse and proportionally great work with whatever it is. So take stock today of anything that goes wrong and say, okay, there's another one. He's able to do some spiritual jujitsu with this, right? An inverse and proportionally great thing. Second, plan. God doesn't plan. God doesn't plan. It's hit me in the, in the weeks leading up to something. I was like, okay, God's plan. And it kept stumbling me a little bit, right? Because if God is the only fully actualized being in creation, he's not part of creation, he created creation, right? Nothing surprises him. You, there's nothing he can learn. There's nothing that new, no new knowledge he can gain, right? So the great promise here I see is the train can't be off the tracks, as much as I want to believe it is, as much as I can say, God, look at, the, look at society, look at all this. Imagine what the disciples were saying. If Jesus is who he says he is, he's God, he's God in the flesh, and yet he's up on a cross. The train's off the tracks. The train's not off the tracks. The train's not off the tracks, okay? So what we get is the promise here that even when the Jewish leaders and Satan and Judas thinks that they have this amazing plan, all they get to do is advance God's script. Why? Because God's fully actualized. He doesn't predict the future. He narrates it. He is standing with us right now in the future where we'll be 20 years from now. He is with us today. At the same time, he's with us when we're born. 
God is fully actualized. So the only one that, uh, so history unfolds for man and unfolds for Satan, but not for God. So the good news is this, that God, we can call it a plan, you can call it a script, you can call it whatever you want, but the train's not off the tracks. He's there, he's in charge of it, and he isn't telling you what might happen. He's telling you what is happening from his perspective. And I gotta tell you, that's a great promise, man. If the Bible says it, we can put some stock in it. But then we start to get into a series of warnings. And here's one that I think is big, proximity. Proximity doesn't save. Proximity doesn't save. So we start off in verses three through four where Satan enters Judas. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. I gotta tell you, something that should stick out here, where are we at in the story? Is this Judas just meeting Jesus? No, this is after at least three years or up to three years of intimate or at least close proximity to Jesus Christ. Judas at this point has probably seen Jesus walk on the water, calm the storm, heal the blind, heal the mute, heal the sick, drive out demons, raise the dead. Literally just before this, at Bethany, he's already, he just got done raising Lazarus after being in the grave for four days. Judas betrays him after all that. Here's the next question. You have some good teachings out there on why, are, why is Satan and the demons irredeemable? They're not wrestling with the faith of whether God exists. They know, and according to James, they shudder at the knowledge, right? They know he exists. Guess who else knows about Jesus? Judas and yet he still betrays him. So I think the caution here is conflating proximity with in intimacy. There's a danger there. And so we had a great brother over the summer. We were doing uh, testimonies, and he said that he'd been in, th in the church. He'd been churched for decades, coming to church for decades. Not an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Gentlemen, if you don't have that, get it, and get it quick, because proximity is not going to save you. Being in church is not going to save anyone. It's a good place. It's a good start. Head in the right direction, but it's not sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient. So please consider that. Next, he gives another warning about prayer. So what's interesting to me is that he says that if you want, not to avoid temptation, because if Satan comes at you, he's going to come at you. But if you want to overcome it, this is a way to do it. And what does he say specifically? He said, on reaching the place, he said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. It's, pretty, it's a very simple phrase, very simple statement. Uh, even a jarhead can understand it, right? Then he, then he withdrew a stone's throw, and what did he do? He prayed. Then in a few more sentences after that, it says that he was in great anguish and prayed even what? More earnestly. Then he came back, and again, we know that in the other gospels, it said he didn't just come back once, he came back a couple times and sat, found them what? Sleeping. So my thing is, is that I realize there appears to be one principal spiritual weapon for overcoming, not avoiding, overcoming temptation. And that's prayer. And here's the other part, prayer in advance of the temptation. Now there's other places that says, you know, that I've hidden your word in my heart so that I would not sin against you. So getting that word in your heart is good. But Jesus, Jesus, God, God in the flesh, gives us one key principal weapon for it. And that's prayer. So if you don't wrestle with temptation, don't worry about prayer, okay? And if you're not Jesus, don't worry about prayer, okay? But if you do wrestle with temptation, right, then this is the prescription from the doctor, the great physician. So please consider it. And he doesn't say how to do it, but he does say to do it, okay? 
Next part, price. I'm just here to tell you there's a price. The truth is going to cost us and it's gonna be expensive, okay? And how do we know the truth? How do we know this is? So they all asked, are you then the son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. And they said, why do we need to hear any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips, okay? I think there's a lesson here. The surest way, the most certain way to be condemned before God or before the world and before evil men is to tell the truth about Jesus Christ. But there's a second side of that. The surest way to be condemned before God is to deny it. So what I would say is we need to pick our enemies well. You need to give some thought about who, you're gonna make somebody mad. Pick the one you wanna make mad, right? Because I'm, I, you've got, we've got every reason to be afraid of the world and Satan. They're more powerful than we are. We're tiny little sheep. Sheep aren't, sheep aren't, I've never seen a sheep like do anything amazing except eat, right? And be petted and be sheared. That's it. That's all they do, right? We're not intimidating creatures by ourselves. Oh, but I got a shepherd. You don't, you don't want to tangle with him, right? Pick your enemy well, but also pick your master well. And don't be afraid. We need, gentlemen, uh, one of our, one of my, uh, our friends, um, he said recently that he was at work and uh, they said, Taliban, Shmaliban, you know, the greatest threat to the United States are evangelical Christians and the FBI should be rounding them up. And my friend, and he sat there and he's like, oh, that, that made me afraid. And so I know better than to talk about my faith in front of them. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna come at him and, and, and kind of like give him a hard time about it. But I would say this, Gentlemen, pick your enemy. Pick your enemy. Is it Jesus Christ? Is, do, you want, do you want to deny him or do you want to deny uh, the world? It's your choice. It's our choice, but we should, we should really consider who we're, who we're willing to make angry. Does that make sense? And it's tough. I don't pretend that it's not tough. It's tough in my life. So again, uh, the, the truth will cost us. What's interesting to me is that the chief priests and the Pharisees couldn't really convict Jesus up to this point, Right? is all the testimony conflicted, uh, conflicted with each other until Jesus said the truth about himself. So please, I would consider, do you know the truth about him? Could you, could you t say the truth about Jesus Christ to someone else in a difficult situation? And I'll be honest with you, the times that I was most afraid to do it, and I thought, man, man, they're gonna, they're gonna take me to the cleaners on this one. God stepped in. God stepped in every time at this point. There will be a time where it's gonna cost a lot. I'm certain of it. But up to this point, I've made it a mountain out of a molehill in terms of telling people about Jesus at work and at other places. And then perseverance. The key part here with perseverance is that uh, from, uh, what is it? John chapter 19, verse 26 to 27, when uh, Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby he said to her, woman, here is your son. So what's interesting to me, it's clear to me that John the Beloved had a unique relationship with Jesus Christ, right? This is the end of Good Friday for all intents, all intents and purposes. Jesus is about to die. He has 12 apostles and hundreds of disciples. Among all those men, how many men are standing with him when he moves into in, uh, when he dies, when he moves into the kingdom. There's only one. Is there anything to learn from this guy? So when we, when we see him talking about himself, this is his own title, right? 
in the book of John, what does John call John? John calls John the disciple that Jesus loved, man. You know what's interesting is, if you ever get to pick your own call sign, right, which you don't ever, right, and it's rarely a flattering call sign, right, but if you did, right, you would pick something in your character that if you got the chance to magnify yourself, what is the defining trait that, that John wants everybody to know him by? Not that he has anything, but that Jesus loves him. Oh my God, I gotta tell you, gentlemen, imagine if I could call Dallas the disciple that Jesus loved, Dallas the beloved, and I lived like that. We see John the beloved, and he's there with Jesus at his most intimate times, right? Like when Jesus gets to pick a small crew of people to come with him in places, right? It's Peter, James, and John, right? He's there at the Mount of Transfiguration, kind of awesome. He's there with the raising of Jairus' daughter, awesome. When it's time there in Gethsemane to go and, and to pull a smaller group away, he's there. But I would take it a step further. He's also there in the chief priest's house when Peter denies Christ. And he's there at the cross when Jesus dies. Now what's interesting to me is, I see Peter, I, I'm a big Peter fan right? Because I'm a little like him sometimes, I think. He was completely ready for physical warfare. I mean, he proved it. He's ready to start hacking people's ears off and stuff like that. He's probably not very talented, clearly. <laughs> he only cut off an ear, you know? But the point is, he's ready for a physical fight. And I would tell you, look around us, men. Look at the men you talk to and you, look at yourself. Look at my, me. I'm ready for a fight. I'm ready to go politically fight. I'm ready to go get out there and socially fight. I'm not ready to spiritually fight often. The spiritual fight's tougher, I think, right? And the rest of the disciples, they weren't ready for any fight, spiritual or otherwise. So gentlemen, I think that we have to be deliberate in preparing to be the, the disciple that Jesus loved. And I think that he, that John the beloved gives us a perfect contrast with Judas. Judas is in close proximity to Christ for years, but not intimate relationship. John is in intimate relationship and proximity. I think he gives us, a, I think if we're gonna survive dark days and be standing next to Jesus Christ at the end of it, I think he gives us a good example for how to do that. So as a wrap up, number one, I see a promise in these dark days, in our dark days. God is able to flip inversely and proportionally, whatever the tragedy is. Number two, he's plan. God don't plan. He doesn't plan. He's the fully actualized being. Everything, even the things that Satan uses, his most diabolical scheme only <laughs> serves to advance God's script, right? So the train's never off the tracks. Three, proximity doesn't save, only intimate relationship. Four, prayer. We're given one key nuclear weapon against temptation, right? That doesn't mean to deny or ignore the others, right? But in extremis, that's the one. And so do we have a prayer life? What does it look like? Then the next one, price. Gentlemen, choose your enemy as well. We can make the world mad or we can make God mad. Pick. Again, one of them's stronger than the other one. So pick your enemy, pick your ally well. And the last part is perseverance. Is the only way that I can see to persevere through these dark days is that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, so as we close, um, here are some of the questions and, and <laughs> I wrote these questions for me, to be honest with you, you know, as, as a way that I could evaluate Dallas. But I'd ask you is that maybe ask yourselves these things and not just ask him, ask him in a way a coach would ask him, right? Not in to make yourself feel bad about it or something, 
but it's okay, good. I'm doing good in some areas. You are. <laughs> there's no one here that's not doing good somewhere. But then there's also places that we can do better. So the first one is, has God ever flipped something in your life inversely and proportionally? What was it? And the second part is, what does intimacy look like with Christ? And how do you achieve it? And what's your plan to get more of it? And then the last part here is, Jesus told his disciples to pray. What does your prayer life look like? Okay, is it, is it individually good? Is it corporately good? Are you praying with your kids? Is that a thing? Is that a constant thing? Are you praying with your wife? And if not, why not? I'm telling you, the day is, we're counting down. It's like little hourglasses flipped upside down. So get busy and get in the fight, okay? All right, Lord, I just thank you for this time. And I thank you for these men. I thank you for this opportunity. You are the good coach that you bring us in and, you, and you, you point out all the ways that we are doing well and that we should reinforce, but you also give us an opportunity to change course and to do better. So Lord, we want one thing. We want you, intimacy. We don't have a plan B or a plan C. We have one, Jesus Christ and his blood. So Lord, we give you this time. We give you our conversations around the table and we wanna be men that are changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 